0: friends, before I begin, let's bow our heads in prayer and ask the Lord to speak to us. Let us pray. Come, O Holy Spirit, even as you inspired Mark to write this gospel to us, inspire us this morning to understand your meaning and your word behind this, that Christ and Christ alone may be glorified and that the words of a man would fall to the ground, but only that of the Lord would remain in our hearts. So search our hearts, Lord, and know us. Search our minds and correct our thoughts. And lift evermore that we may come to the stream of living water and be refreshed and renewed in our faith and in our belief. And so may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts, O Lord, be acceptable to you, our rock, and our Redeemer. Amen. I'd like to begin this morning by asking a question. Have you ever received a king? Some of you might have and some of you might have actually sat in the presence of a king I asked this question once of my friends in Singapore and uh, their answers were very different from people in uh, Thailand and uh, Japan. Uh, you know, in Thailand and Japan, uh, the emperor and the king are revered almost uh, to, the, to the extent of deity. Uh, they're, they're seen with such delight and they're seen as a blessing uh, to the entire nation. Uh, quite different, maybe, in Malaysia and Singapore, because <clears throat> I ask my friends in Malaysia and Singapore and say, "What's it like? You know, how do you know when the king has come?" And their answer is traffic jam. <laughs> I say, "Why?" They said, you know, I mean, in Malaysia and Singapore, you tend to see when. In Singapore, doesn't really have a king; they have a president. But sometimes our sultans or the king goes over." the causeway, and, and they say, yeah, when, when your sultans come over and all that, uh, we have traffic jam, because the first instant you know that they're there, all these police escorts come, and then they all say, topi, topi <laughs> move to the side. We have today in this uh, standard typical uh, reading, Palm Sunday. Uh, and to, to answer Brother Daniel, Sunday school, is uh, running, but they're not here. They're actually having a, a party at the moment, or the Easter party, so they're gathered together, and so today we didn't have the, uh, the usual dismissal. But this, is, has, this has, in a way, become a standard pattern every year that we come to Palm Sunday. And uh, it, had to, it made me think a little bit about what do we really want to remember about Palm Sunday? You would have possibly read uh, the the triumphal entry of Jesus, which is normally the title that's given to this particular passage from Matthew, or Luke, or John. But Mark's description of this entry into the temple is uh, kind of really far away from triumphal. Uh, it is quite different, in the sense that it is uh, more muted and a very different kind of response. In the description given by Matthew or even sometimes Luke, uh, you you, you get the sense of what the writer is saying that the whole city was abuzz. It's almost as if an electric storm was arriving in the city by this arrival of Jesus who is ascribed as prophet, extraordinary. This prophet who has come out from Nazareth, the one that has come after John the Baptist, and John the Baptist was seen a bit like the Messiah. Now comes another one who seems to be even greater because what he has done, he has caused lepers to be healed. He has caused those who were demon-possessed to basically come back to life as per normal. He has walked on water He has calmed the storm and the tempest. And now, He is coming into Jerusalem. I also want to remind you, when you read uh, about Palm Sunday, it's very easy to just look at Palm Sunday, okay, Jesus coming in. We need to also look at the whole narrative of what has been written before about what Jesus had been doing all this point until He comes to this particular place where He's about to enter into Jerusalem. So let me give you a very brief summary about how Mark has described it. In the beginning in Mark chapter 1, Mark clearly states, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's the purpose of his writing. It's the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So he's very clearly telling people, this man that I'm about to describe to you is not just a man, he is God, Son of God, and he is coming. And so his first eight chapters describe in the instance of his coming, his testing, his, uh, his baptism, his testing, and then his immediate Uh, action and Mark is a writer who's very short in his words but very punchy he's the one who writes you know and immediately and immediately Uh, in the seminary when we were reading him it was very tiring Uh, Mark would write in his Greek and says uh, Kai Kai it's like continuous action And his continuous action spans over a number of years, but when he comes to the time in Jerusalem, it slows down into a dramatic pace. It's almost blow by blow, moment by moment. But the first eight chapters of what Mark is writing about is this question that everyone is asking, who is this guy? And Mark writes and says, this man... When he was baptized by John, the Holy Spirit came upon him. A voice from heaven tore open heaven and said, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. Others heard. And in description after description, Jesus goes about doing miracles that can only point to the fact that he is God. We know this because the Pharisees and Sadducees' first question is, What kind of man is this? How dare he blaspheme God by saying that he can forgive sins? And Jesus says, Which is easier, to heal a man or to forgive him of his sin? And to that extent, the Pharisees and Sadducees were right. It is impossible for a man to forgive sin. Only God can. And therefore, if this man has said, I forgive your sins. And then teaches them, he says, which one is easier, to forgive sins or to, to make a man get up, pick up your mat and walk? And in order to answer the hardness of their heart, he then said to the man, get up, pick up your mat and walk, proving to them that he could do that miracle. But more importantly, if he could do that miracle... And he was already telling that person, your faith has saved you, has healed you, your sins are forgiven. Then it meant that he had the ability to forgive sins. Mark also writes, that Jesus was so tired you know uh, again Mark writes this uh, this gospel and he says you know Jesus is like working and working and working he's exercising demons and all that stuff he's so tired he gets into the boat and he goes crossing the boat he falls asleep in the middle of a storm and the disciples come to him master do you not care that we are dying he gets up he rebukes the wind peace be still uh, you know, I, I, I love uh, that particular portion because every time I see some of my charismatic friends go into an exorcism or healing, they're shouting and yelling and they're trying to scare the demon out of a person. And Jesus often responds with, peace be still. <laughs> it's a very short statement. <clears throat> Shows you what, what depth of authority And I ask some of my orang asli friends, you know, I ask them in BM, uh, Kenapa ini Tuhan Yesus buat cara begini? Dan kenapa mereka takut? In English it's uh, why does Jesus do it this way? And why is everyone scared? Because the response from the disciples, they were shocked. I mean, the, the text is saying they're so scared. Their response is, what manner of man is this that he commands the winds and the seas and they obey? And they were, you know, my orang-asli friends were scratching their heads much as some of you might be looking at me right now. So, yeah, why? Because that is the only instance in the Bible where a man addresses the elements directly everywhere else every prophet calls upon god to do something but jesus being god himself does it direct and so we have in the first eight chapters time and time again a god who is so brilliant so marvelous so exceptionally intelligent i mean if you ask me is he greater than stephen hawking's yeah because he had answers to questions about life and reality, things which even Hawking was trying to figure out, what is real. He had answers to life and reality, and he constantly confounded the people who addressed him, who were trying to trick him. And so by the end of chapter 8, Jesus has... It, Fed 5,000 people out of nothing. Two loaves. Yeah, sorry, two fish, five loaves. Fed them. Made a blind person, blind from birth, see. He has done all these things. And finally, in chapter 8, he comes up to this mountain. He brings all his apostles, his disciples together and say, Who do the people say that I am? And their answer is, Well, yeah. Ezekiel? No, no, no. Elijah? The one promised, Elijah? Some say you are John the Baptist, come back alive. And finally, Jesus asked them, in the same way that he asked each and every one of us, each and every day, Who do you say that I am? And Peter, in a moment of inspiration, replies and says, You are the Messiah the Son of the Most High God. In other accounts of that particular transfiguration, the cloud comes over them and God says, this is my Son, listen to Him. Why? Because in all these eight chapters, the disciples are blind, stupid, ignorant. Now, I'm giving you what Mark says. You don't don't see this in Luke or Matthew. Matthew. Luke and Matthew and John are a bit kinder in their estimation of the disciples. But Mark has a particular reason why he's writing. Mark says that these disciples, although they saw what Jesus was doing, although they now understood the identity of who Jesus was, they were nonetheless still blind. You know, uh, Jesus, as soon as he tells them as soon as, as Peter confirms that he is uh, the Messiah, and as soon as the cloud comes and, and, and he's transfigured, Jesus tells them, the Son of Man must suffer and die. And on the third day, he will be raised again. He doesn't say this once. He says this three times. The first time, Peter says, how can this be? That's absolute nonsense. Shut up, Jesus. This is not the way for you to conquer the kingdom. That's the effect of what Peter is trying to do. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. The second time he says this, the apostles are all like, what is he talking about? And then, along the way, they argue as to who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Why? because if jesus is going to be gone then who's going to be the next leader they still believed that jesus would be this messianic king that would usher in this victorious kingdom and they wanted to be the next in line and they could not understand what jesus was saying those who wish to be greatest let him be the least Jesus turns everything topsy turvy. The way we understand the world and the way God's kingdom comes is so totally vastly different. And you find in Mark chapter 9, moving on from chapter 8, Jesus now turns and resolutely sets his way to Jerusalem. Ta-da. <laughs> we come now to the biggest conflict. Virtually one-third of the entire book of Mark is spent on this particular conflict. You see, when you, when you read Mark, you find that all the conflicts that all this while has always been with the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the writers of the law, members of the Sanhedrin council. Who are all these people? Uh, Jerusalem people people who came from the center of religion and the center of control and power in Jerusalem. And Jesus had finally arrived in Jerusalem. Now, I'm I'm laying a very long background to this because without understanding all of this, we kind of like forget what Palm Sunday is all about. And so Jesus arrives. Let me just read this. Jesus is fulfilling a number of Old Testament prophecies for the coming King. And in spite of all these things that are happening, He is still in control. Now, just just pointing you to the uh, sermon outline that you have there. Uh, it's further on in the back. In this very short few verses, Jesus is already fulfilling a number of Old Testament prophecies of the coming King this prophecy that he is in full control of all that's happening and that he knows what he's about to do you find that in zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 let me just read that in zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 genesis 49 verse 8 to 11 and 2 kings 9:13 these are some of the many prophecies that are being fulfilled In Zechariah 9, verse 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, it's repeated a few times here. Uh, Donkey, colt, foal of a Donkey. Uh, In the reading in Mark, you have this colt. In the reading in Matthew or Luke, you might find a colt slash donkey or a young foe. Whatever it is, um, again, this is more an issue about how they translate it in Greek. It is generally seen as a young male donkey. A young male donkey, why? Uh, you call a colt a male donkey who has not been castrated yet. And why is this a, a particularly interesting thing? It means that no one has yet to ride this particular donkey. Why is that an important point? Well, one, who is this Zechariah? Zechariah is a, what we call a minor prophet. A minor prophet doesn't mean he is small and insignificant. A minor prophet is a prophet by Bible definitions, who doesn't write as much as someone like Isaiah, okay, or Ezekiel. He does, it's just that he doesn't write as much, but it doesn't mean he's less important. Zechariah arrives at about the same time as Haggai. And two, these two prophets are what we might call the post-exilic uh, prophets. They are slightly towards the end of the exile, and Zechariah is said to be a prophet somewhere in the period of 536 BC. Now what this therefore means is he is making a prophecy of this king who will come with justice and salvation, righteousness riding on a colt full donkey. 500 plus years almost, in fact, almost 570 years if you count Jesus' age by the time there, before Jesus comes. And the prophecy he makes is about this king whose reign will be eternal. That's not just one thing. When a king comes, a king can choose uh, several ways to come. And in this particular case, he decides to come on a donkey. The other aspect which you find in Genesis 49 or 2 Kings 9.13 is, uh, is these two things. One, it is the king's right to commandeer any vehicle. So in this ancient Near East culture, the king, if recognized, would say, if I say, I need to use your horse, or I need to use your donkey, or I need to use your cart, uh, the person who recognizes the role of this king would say, yes, by all means, go ahead. And so Jesus does this. The third thing that we see about this is people start laying down their cloaks and branches. There is a story in 2 Kings, sorry, I've not put the reference here, in 2 Kings where Jehu, who is the new king who is told to depose Ahab of Ahab and Jezebel fame. (laughs) And Jehu is told, you are now king. And as soon as all his his followers heard that Jehu was now anointed as king by the prophet's messenger, the immediate thing that they do, did as he was walking up the stairs, they laid down their cloaks. It's a, it's a sign of oh, all that I have that is external to me, I lay down at your feet. In the same way we sing this song, I Surrender All, that's the symbolic action of what they were doing. My outer appearances, all that I have, all that's most important, the outer cloak was the most important belonging that you have. It was the most expensive garment that most people had. To lay it down would be the very thing that they would use. And there's this waving of these branches. So let me come back to this uh, particular situation. Jesus' kingship is a hidden majesty. It's a hidden majesty because when we think about kings of current age, they are mighty, powerful. They come in the most expensive Mercedes or most expensive limousine that you can find. Bulletproof, armour-plated, I don't know. I don't mingle in that group. But I'm told it's mega expensive and there's this whole retinue of people coming. Jesus comes on donkey. (laughs) Many people have made allegorical stories about, uh, about the use of this donkey. They said, every Christian should be a donkey like Jesus, for Jesus. We carry Jesus and then Jesus does the work. We're just uh, just mules that carry him in. But that's not the point of this particular narrative. Interesting as that story is, that's not the point of this particular narrative. Let me ask you, when a person as a king comes, uh, whether on a horse or on a donkey... Uh, what does that denote? Symbolically, in the ancient Near East, a king could either ride either one. But if a king rode a donkey or a horse, uh, it would depend on the role that he would play, whether it is of peace or conquest. And therefore, if a king came riding on a donkey, it came in peace. But when he comes riding on a horse, that's conquest. And we know that Jesus will come again riding on a white horse. Revelations. And at that time when He comes, written on His body will be His name, King of kings, Lord of lords. And judgment will come from Him. But at this time, He comes in peace as the Word of God. The very Word of God that created all things. Without that word, the earth would not be formed. <clears throat> now, I want to, to do a little bit of language here, uh, but I'm not trying to show that I'm clever. <laughs> but I need you to understand what is going on in this background. <clears throat> There's this point that I make that Jesus is the focal point of salvation and draws God's plan to completion hundreds of years before Zechariah had prophesied. And I would also say that Malachi is uh, saying something about this as well. Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 is also talking about the messenger of God, the messenger of the covenant arrives at his temple. But the reading that you have in Psalm 118 verse 25 and 26 uh, let me just read that to you again. Psalm 118, verse 25 and 26 says, Lord, save us. In Hebrew, is actually hoshiana. That's where this term hosanna comes from. Hosanna in English is a transliteration of the Greek, which is also hosanna, but the Greek is a translation of, or transliteration of the Hebrew, which is hoshiana, hoshiana, which means Lord save us. The text in Psalms goes, Lord save us, Lord grant us success, uh, in a way has two appeals, two ways in which you read hosanna. One is hosanna, Lord save us, the other way of understanding Hosanna, which became to be the understanding after the exile, is even as we call the Lord to save us, He is our salvation and has saved us. It is an appeal, and yet an appeal that knows that God has, will, and will always do it. But let me also show you something that happens when you when you bring together all this Old Testament understanding and New Testament understanding to what the text is saying jesus name jesus name in in greek is eosus which is a translation of the hebrew yeshua his uh, his hebrew name or aramaic name is yeshua bar yosef okay the malays we call uh, the malays actually call him isa but that's not really uh, any name at all Uh, It's just a name that they give. But his actual name in in Hebrew is Yeshua bar Yosef, or Yusuf, is the Malay would call it, Yosef. But here's the interesting thing. Yeshua, very similar to Joshua, actually means Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. Now let's go back to the reading in Mark. What does the reading in Mark actually say? The reading in Mark says, Hosanna... Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which you will find later on in Psalm 118 is the very thing that they are saying. What is Psalm 118? Psalm 118 is a psalm which the pilgrims would sing after all the Hallelujah Psalms. You find the Hallelujah Psalms, Psalm 111, 112, 113, 114, all the way up to 117. And then Psalm 118 is the last psalm that they would sing as they finally enter into Jerusalem, heading towards the temple. And this is not sung at Passover. It is sung during the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, In Hebrew, it's called Sukkoth. It normally happens in September. But here's the amazing thing. Whilst people are shouting Hosanna, because at the Feast of Succoth, what you're supposed to do is four times a day, you're supposed to wave these branches. And you will find in Mark, it says there that they wave branches. But in the others, uh, in Matthew and Luke, they wave palms or branches. What is it? Is it branches or is it palms? Well, Uh, The reason why it is palms and branches is because the Feast of Sukkoth, they are supposed to wave four types of branches. Four different types. And so Mark just describes it as branches. Here they are waving these branches and what they're supposed to do? Say this psalm. What does the psalm say? Hosanna, Lord, save us. And the response, after a while you find Mark records, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now I want to try this, right? So let's make sure that you're awake because I know I've been talking a little while. I'm going to ask this side to say Hosanna, right? I'm going to ask this side to respond the way it is supposed to be responded to. And the response is, if you look at your bulletin, you will find the Jewish way in which they will do this. So this side will say Hoshyanna. This side will say Baruch Haba Bashem, Adonai. Well wow, this side panicking, inside like, this, oh thank goodness it's just Hoshiana. <laughs> but let's try this. Ready? Hosiana Baruch Haba Bashem Adonai. Ready? One, two, three. Okay, <laughs> maybe we try the other way around and see. <laughs> right, this side say Hosanna, that side say Baruch Haba Bashem Adonai. Ready? One, two, three. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> no, that that in a way is how it goes. Hosanna, Baruch Haba Bashem Adonai hallelujah i know i'm giving you a a, a, a bit of a lesson in hebrew here because the hallelujah hymns what does hallelujah mean praise the lord hallelujah it's an ongoing continuous cycle of the pilgrim who comes what are these pilgrims coming for why are they coming to the temple because they want to encounter jesus And he says not not really jesus as they understand but they want to encounter god because they come to the temple and they want to see god and they ask for salvation and here's the thing jesus who is yahweh who saves has now come as part of this but he is not a pilgrim he is the lord of the temple You see, for every Jew who was there, if you were to ask any Jewish person in that period, where is God? They will look and look for the centre of Jerusalem and point at the temple and say, there. In the temple, in the Holy of Holies, that's where God is. But here is Jesus, Yeshua, Yahweh who saves the image of God in their midst coming to the temple. Coming to the temple. And what happens? Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, He went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now, now, Jesus is not like a not like his normal pilgrim you know he's coming and he's surveying the temple much in the same way that the lord of the temple would actually look over the temple and let me just end with this explanation and then start talking about some applications why is Bethany mentioned why is Bethpage mentioned why is the Mount of Olives mentioned Mark is a careful writer albeit he's a Mr. Excitement but when he leaves information, there are particular infinite, important bits of information. Bethphage actually means Bethphage. Bethphage means house of figs. In fact, house of no figs, because immediately after this is this talk about how the figs did not bear fruit in the other gospels. Bethany means house of sorrow and it gives the person who understands the uh, the, the geography of jerusalem to know that jesus was coming from this direction and actually went up to the mount of olives and from the mount of olives mount of olives is actually higher than jerusalem he's coming down he arrives in Jerusalem and then he goes back the same way, back to the house of sorrows. Incidentally, this is an aside, Bethlehem means house of bread. So, Beth, house, uh, and then the term. They were names of the kampung, you want to call it that, the cities. Why is this particularly important? Because in the book of Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel saw the glory of god rising from the temple this was of the greatest impact on the jews because that was the prophet telling them the glory of god has left you has departed from your temple and in that reading in ezekiel the glory of god lifted up from the temple and went toward the mount of olives And that's why in a lot of the Messianic readings and a lot of the old, uh, you know, this is going to happen, judgment or the king will come from the Mount of Olives. And you have all these prophetic uh, understandings. But here the king has already arrived. Arrived from the Mount of Olives where he departed, came back to the temple, found the temple and left the temple. Essentially declaring to them, that the temple is no more and that the real temple is jesus himself because after this what happens is jesus doesn't just scourge the temple he basically says he's destroying it it is no longer there now i spent a huge amount of time explaining a fair bit of background and you might be at this point that, yeah well, pastor that's entertaining but what's that all about <laughs> It's amusing, it's uh, information, but so what? You have to think about this, that although many people greeted Jesus as king in Jerusalem, Jesus arrives at the temple without fanfare and without any reception. Can you imagine a king? Lord and creator of the entire universe, he comes in, and those who ought to receive him have basically ignored him i repeat again eight nine chapters before ten chapters before jesus has been continuously doing stuff amazing miraculous astounding only god can do type things and he has been conflicting with the pharisees and the sadducees who obviously after chapter 8 and 9, know that he is coming to Jerusalem. And if the king is coming and you don't receive this king and say, welcome, it means I have rejected this king. I do not want to receive this king. This is all about the, you know, what Jesus explains later on, the parable of the tenants, where the owner's son has come And now they plot and say let us kill this son so that we may inherit this kingdom. Uh, I need a bit of help to move this slide forward. It's kind of stuck now. Yeah. (laughs) Let me ask this point of us. Do not mistake enthusiasm and group spirit against truth and individual discernment. What do I mean by that? Mark is warning against mistaking enthusiasm for faith and popularity for discipleship. Now I'm not saying that enthusiasm and uh, popularity is not important but let's not mistake it for being that. Do not assume that when the church is enthusiastic or when the church is popular or when everybody is going, yeah, you are the one, you are the greatest, you are the best, that that is a sign of faithfulness and discipleship. The true sign of faithfulness and discipleship is determined at the cross. Mark in chapter 15 says it, verse 39. It is at the cross that our faith and our discipleship is determined. Why? Because Jesus said, If anyone would be my disciple, let him deny himself daily, take up his cross, follow me. Now that is not to say that enthusiasm is wrong. But I must ask you, what is your enthusiasm for? Is your enthusiasm for Christ, and only in Christ, or is it in the things of this world? Because the crowds came, and just like Jesus' parable of the seed, the sower and the seed, they received it with joy, but their roots didn't set in. And when the troubles and the cares of the world came, they shriveled up and disappeared. What manner of faith do we have when our faith is shallow, when our roots do not go in, that when it comes to difficulty, trial, and test, we shrivel and fall away. And sadly, I encounter this more and more in this current age and time. Many friends come and say, "Mm, the church is not feeding me. Um, You know, Sunday school is boring or the worship is not, hot enough or the preaching is not entertaining enough and I come feeling very dry now I'm not saying that we don't need to address those issues but if the decisions are based on that then what the decisions are are what is popular what is enthusiastic energetic not exactly is Jesus calling you to be here because if you are called to be here and to suffer through this in order that you would change things, then by all means, follow Him. We have in our liturgy earlier on that in the same way Jesus arrived in Jerusalem at the center of the temple, Jesus arrives at each and every one of our hearts, each and every day, because your heart is the temple of God. Paul, when he's preaching to them, says to people individually and corporately, you are the temple of God, for Christ is in you. And so when Christ comes, when He comes to you, what will He find? What will He observe? Will it be a Bethany? Will it be a Bethphage? Will it be empty and barren of what God is calling you to do? Are we pursuing the rituals, the traditions, the enthusiasm and the popularity only and placing our enthusiasm in the wrong place? What will your answer be? The hiddenness of the gospel of the kingdom of God is very apparent in how Mark deals with it. Every time he does this, Jesus says, don't tell others. Which therefore means for us, the gospel doesn't come to us like, oh yeah, every, you know, God loves me, He wants me in and I'll just stumble my way in. There is a certain element of hiddenness which therefore means when Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God, that seek in the Greek is with all your strength. it means that we enter in it and we have to work hard to find our way and find our truth in this. Yes, salvation is by faith and faith alone, but faith is evidenced by its works. So it's a salvation by faith and works. Let me end with these few applications. Thank you. What would Jesus see if He arrived at Penang Trinity one of these days? It worries me. (laughs) Not because I'm worried about what we are doing. It worries me because under the scrutiny of Christ, everything is stripped away of its facade and we are truly unmasked for who we are. And that is my appeal to you as a fellow brother in Christ that we unmask and stop pretending and genuinely seek god what will you teach your children about seeking the popular things you know for many years for my children they're not here sitting down with us in 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 church was difficult they'd rather be running around But to have them with you and for them to watch us at worship is the only example that they have. And we had to tell them there is a value to community that is far beyond you chasing the nearest butterfly. What will you teach your children about having truth and discernment far greater than enthusiasm and popularity? And the second question, Uh, which is one of the most important questions, who do you say Jesus is to you? Not what your parents say, not what others say or what the pastor says, who do you say? Later on today at our second service, we'll have a few people who are answering that question in their own way, in their own form. That commitment is something they make today, but it is something we are called to make every single day as we abide in christ who is jesus to us because when you answer that question then every action that follows from that is a response let me close that whole issue of what the gospel is in mark in mark the first eight chapters say this is who jesus is in chapter 8 and 9 if jesus is this then what is he supposed to do He's coming to die on the cross but it ends with this question hanging over there if jesus has died on the cross and has risen again and he's going ahead what are you going to do the gospel of mark ends in a cliffhanger what will the people do the women have seen him and jesus said, said he's going ahead will the others follow Will you seek out the hiddenness of the kingdom of God? Not when you are over on the other side of death's door. Here, now. Because Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand now. Not when you enter into this imaginary heaven. Heaven begins on earth where the king is reigning and ruling. Let us pray.